Welcome once more to one of our MotoGP podcasts here from the-race.com. And it's a different edition this week as we cover you guys, the listeners, and your questions about a simply stunning MotoGP season in 2020. Five races in, four different winners in the shape of Quattararo, Binder, Davizioso, and Oliveira. Three first-time winners. Wow! We are going to cover off the questions that you've been sending us in to at We Are The Race, or myself, at Toby Moody, or Simon Patterson, at Denkmit, D-E-N-K-M-I-T, or Neil Spaulding, at Spaulders. Well, Simon, where do we start? Can I go first? <laughs> Crack on, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get straight into it with a question from VR Hutch 46. I can imagine who you support. How close is the Rossi deal with Patronus coming along? So, uh, from what we can gather, it's largely all done. But the bit that still needs to be finished is lawyers preparing contracts to be signed by all parties. We've got... A bunch of Italian lawyers working for Rossi. We've got a bunch of Japanese lawyers working for Yamaha. We've got a bunch of Malaysian lawyers working for Petronas. And then probably a few other Malaysian lawyers working for Sapang Racing Team as well. And from what I can gather, they are struggling to come to final terms and conditions because, as always, money is the stumbling block. From what we expect, from what Rossi has said, it's all pretty much going to go ahead. Uh, there's there's no questioning that the money is there, obviously, given the parties involved and that Rossi's will to continue is there and that Yamaha's commitment of support is there. But really, um, it's a, probably a pretty good time to be Patronus Yamaha boss Roslan Rosali because he holds all the cards at the minute. He's the one that decides. And I even heard a little rumour the other day that they've put out a few feelers down to Ed of just to put a little bit of pressure on. I was just about to say, there's only one thing that can happen for Valentino Rossi, and if it drags on too long, well, yeah, exactly. I'll never forget speaking to Carlo Fiorani, very likeable, smiley Italian man who works at, and still does at, at Honda, HRC. And I said to him years ago when Valentino was at Repsol Honda, you know, what's it really like to do a deal with Valentino Rossi? And he says, Toby, <laughs> it's really easy. And I went, really easy? He said, yeah, it's really easy. Uh, but in what way? Surely the money is the stumbling block. And he goes, no, 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 no. And he said something like, he says 15, we say 10. He says 14, we say 12. He says 13, we say 12 and a half. It's done. He said, honestly, the money is the really easy bit. I said, so what's what, what's the difficult bit? And he goes, the PR days. <laughs> yeah. And I'll never forget that conversation. And, of course, his hand gestures were 15, 10. Uh, of course. It was one way, then the yeah. other, when the other, yeah, then the yeah, other, yeah. and then it balanced in the middle. And it was all about the PR days. And I thought, oh, yeah, of course, because that's the thing that riders do don't think they get paid for. They think it's a complete pain <laughs> in the backside, which it is at times if you've got to fly around the world yeah, and, for and whatever. Sure. And I've been involved in some of those PR days where Valentino's on holiday in in, in Ibiza at his, at his place there. And we had a Yamaha, I was hosting a big Yamaha do, launching a new R1 in Barcelona. 
Yamaha put on a private jet to go from Ibiza to Barcelona. I mean, how long's that flight? 15 minutes. Four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was four hours late. Excellent. But what do you do? You get the commentator to pad for a bit is what exactly. happens. So, yeah, uh, it, it's, um, it's, it's got to happen. I hope it doesn't end up silly and a bad taste in everybody's mouth before they start. Yeah. But it's got to happen because he's not going to retire. Well, he's got no intentions of retiring, has he? And he's not going to go anywhere else. So just do the deal. Yeah. Exactly. Let's get it over and done with. Let's get it over and done with. Now, this is the question, Simon, that we all get asked, whether or not it's down the pub, meeting your friends, on the phone, Twitter, Instagram. Who's your money on? Who's going to win the championship? If I knew that, you would be hearing me from my boat in Monaco uh, with my private jet down the road in Nice, because we all would have put our money on who is going to win the championship year on year. But of this year, of all years... I have no idea. I just have no idea how it's all going to pan out. My gut is it won't be Quattararo. That's not because I don't think he's a quick rider. I just think that maybe it's all happened too quickly, too early with that double win at the beginning of the year. And he was very Hareth-centric. Put the ghosts to rest of 2019 at Hareth. He's climbed the mountain, but now he's got to climb another one. Don't know who's going to win. It's that simple. Who was it that said that being a supposed expert is not being afraid to say I don't know sometimes? That is exactly where we are. I haven't a clue either. Um, my gut feeling would be similar to yours in that if if you had to twist my arm to put money on anyone, it would probably be Dovi, simply because of the experience, the speed that he's had in the past. But obviously the start of the season that he's had means that you have to look at him and say, mm, maybe not. It is worth noting that despite not having the best start to the season, he is still second in the championship. And that is how some people in the past, Valentino Rossi being one of them, has won championships. Consistency, you know, managing the bad days. It's a little bit easier for Dovi to manage the bad days this year because everyone's having a lot of them. So there's no Mark Marquez whose worst result of the season is second, etc, etc, etc. So my gut would be that his experience is just going to tick him over the line ahead of the rest uh, I think Quadraro like you say is a bit of an unknown quantity and I'm not quite sure how he's going to make it to the end of the year and then a few other people that I would have put my money on unfortunately for them had pretty poor starts to the season like Rins and Mir at Suzuki which kind of rules them out of contention as well and Vinales and Yamaha as a whole are having a, a big big Bad I, run, yeah. long bad run. Exactly, exactly. You know, Vinales was a was a championship favourite of mine a couple of years ago, and it it didn't happen for whatever reason. But coming back to your consistency point, let us not forget Nicky Hayden in his championship year. He only won two Grand Prix. Yes, uh, but he was there, 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 there. Same as Kenny Junior in two thousand. Yeah, he was always there. So it's all those all those strange years we keep talking about. Exactly, exactly. And when that we, we do keep referencing this year in the context of exactly, and when we do spread out the number of winners, big number of winners throughout a season, as it looks like we're hopefully, hopefully, cross fingers going to have this year, then you just need to manage your bad days. And Davizioso has the most experience about managing bad days. 
the bloke who didn't manage a bad day this year was Mark Marquez in race one. He, at all costs, was wired up to win that race because everybody said, you've got to win the race. Mm-hmm. And he got to third. He got his 16 points. He thought he could do better. And he's lost a championship, never mind a Grand Prix. That was bad management, arguably. Arguably. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's balancing. Yeah. Greg LeMond said, and we're in the Tour de France at the moment, Greg LeMond said a couple of stages before the end of the 1989 Tour de France, when Laurent Fignon was leading by a minute and a bit, but, but LeMond was coming back. And Lamont had a great line, and I trot it out monthly. If he has a bad day and I have a good day, we that could change. And Greg Lamont won it in the last 200 metres of the last uh, time trial, which happened on the Champs-Élysées, and he won it by eight seconds. Wow. So, yeah. And he turned around a massive time margin because Lamont... A minute and a half's a big gap. Yeah, Lamont was was absolutely at the pinnacle that particular day and the pressure for Fignon at the end of a three-week bike race mm-hmm. was too much in France, Frenchman, Champs-Élysées, the whole thing, and he, and, he, and he cracked. You couldn't make up a bigger sporting scenario than that. It, was, it, it still gives me shivers to this day. <laughs> so, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Uh, um, but as I said, if we knew where to put our money, we would, <laughs> you'd have a very nice van. Exactly. <laughs> An even better one. Uh, Kieran James, do you think Aprilia and Suzuki are likely to have satellite teams in the next two years? I would put money on Suzuki having a satellite team in 2022 before I would put money on who's going to win the 2020 championship. I think it's all but a given. They have seen what everyone else is doing. They've seen how much of a benefit it has brought other teams, especially KTM. Uh, They have been thinking about it for quite some time. And I think they finally get over the biggest hurdle, which for, you know, Suzuki is a big manufacturer, but they're a very, very small racing department. And they have never quite had the resources to be able to deliver four bikes of the same spec at the same time at the start of the season, which, let's be honest, is the only way to run a satellite team these days. It's it's to do what Yamaha are doing with uh, Petronas, it's to do what Honda are doing with LCR, it's to do what Ducati are doing with Pramac, and it's to do what KTM are doing with Tech 3. Four bikes, same spec, speed up your development, have a, you know, a young development team, that's the way forward now. Um, yeah, I think Suzuki will do it in 2022. Who they do it with, I'm not entirely sure yet. But worth remembering, at the end of the 2021 season, all of the uh, contracts for spots on the grid come up for renewal. There will be a reshuffling, and there is still two extra spots on the grid because the intention is a 24-bike grid. Uh, I went... I was with Hervé Poncherao at the end of last week. Uh, I went to visit him at Tech 3 headquarters, had a long talk about this. He says, as wearing his other hat as the president of the International Race Team Association, that their goal is 24 bikes in the grid, six manufacturers, each manufacturer delivering four bikes. So as far as he's concerned, 
Suzuki. It's basically a given that it's going to happen for Suzuki. And I think he would be very, very surprised if Aprilia didn't try and do the same thing. We shall see. Thank you, Kieran James. Pat McR1 says, out of all the eras that you have seen, 500, 990, 800,000, what era has given you the the most wow moments? For me... Pat, that's an easy one. I was involved in the paddock for six years with 500cc from 96 to the end of 01. But for me, 990 was the the, the era. Five years we had of 990, likewise five years of 800. And of course, we're in the current 1000cc era. But 990 for me was just brilliant because it opened the door to those manufacturers who were uninterested in two-stroke, the Kawasaki's and the Ducati's. The Aprilia's came back. Uh, it 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 threw open the doors to wacky thinking technology and engine configurations. We had, of course, straight four, V4, V5, straight three with the Aprilia that was just mental. Uh, just mental. What did Mark <laughs> Knopfler say when he came to Donington one year? The demented Ducati. It sounds absolutely mad. When I interviewed him in pit lane, uh, Mark <laughs> Knopfler, Dar Straits lead man and an absolute bike nut still to this day. And yeah, those 990s were just brilliant. They were good times. Uh, yes, I know for the first two years, Valentino romped it with the Repsol Honda V5 and it was just an orange wash, so. never mind a whitewash. But he won with class, as he does, and I've got a soft spot for that Honda V5 because my head still can't get around the fact that there's three there and there's two there. But, you know, uh, Neil will bring us up to speed with that later. But for me, yeah, uh, that was the era that gave me the most wow moments. And I said to Julian Ryder when we were in a hire car once, I said, this 990 era is the Group B rallying of motorcycle <laughs> racing. And yeah. even Julian understood that. Yeah. It's, yeah, with his with his love affair that he has with car racing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, just nuts of, of 550 horsepower rally cars going through <laughs> forests with fiberglass doors and not much safety. But it was nuts in a great way. So, yeah, um, 800 for me, not a good era. 800 for me just just brings me memories of of, of poor Marco Simoncelli. It's, it was all corner accidents and such like for me it, it, it there's something about it that didn't doesn't re- resonate in in some way but uh but yeah, yeah there's races of course that are highlight races that's a different mm-hmm. question but eras for me 990 so i've obviously i've only been in the paddock for the thousand era but i've been a fan since um tail end of 500 start of 990s but for me, the the you know I think we're in a real golden era right now. I think in 15, 20, 30, 50 years, we're going to be looking back at this block of time as just one of the peak times in MotoGP. And it's only going to get better for the foreseeable future. That's the best thing about it. I think we, we have, we're nowhere near the crest of the wave of this era because Mark Marquez is going to come back next year He's going to discover that instead of being three manufacturers that can challenge for wins, there's now five, maybe six. He's going to discover that instead of being two or three riders that can push him for a championship, the level has moved on a little bit in his absence. And there's going to be six or seven riders that can challenge for their win every weekend and push him for a title. 
yeah, I think um, maybe it's a bit not really answering the question to say next year, but uh, I think we're we're right in the verge of something really, really special because of the great job that, that Dorna and Erta and the MSMA have done with crafting rules that just level the playing field so much. Question from Chris van der Velt. I cannot help but think that the KTM Moto2 chassis of last year helped the riders for MotoGP particularly to ride the V4 bikes. It doesn't appear that Calyx or Speedup does the same thing. Um, because it wasn't a KTM, KTM chassis last year, it was KTM team. KTM have never made a Moto2 chassis per... Sorry, they did in previous years, but they didn't last year, sorry. They didn't last year. Um... And it was only Brad Binder who's moved over this year from Mudder 2 KTM team last year. But, yeah, it's an interesting one. My take on that is, what year is it? And it's not a given that the Mudder 2 winning chassis from the year before will win in the current year. It doesn't work like that. Uh, yeah, that's a fair point. I, I think it's also backed up by the fact that I am not a huge believer in Moto2 being a very good class for spotting talent particularly or for seeing the, the cream race to the top. Uh, we've seen for a number of years that people who are very fast in Moto2 go to MotoGP and, and just don't do it. Um, Tom Lutti, Tito Rabat, for example. We've also seen people who have never actually managed to set the world on fire in Moto2 go to MotoGP and be instant superstars like Fabio Quattararo. Um, I don't know whether it's something to do with the nature of putting production bike chassis with limited electronics into Grand Prix prototype frames or what exactly it is, but it just doesn't quite... Um, it doesn't quite be the the development platform for riders that it really should be. And I think what we're seeing with KTM, the reason that riders are coming from KTM Moto2 chassis and being very, very good in MotoGP is a lot more to do with KTM being very, very good at talent spotting and building a structure that takes riders from, from MotoGP, from Red Bull rookies to MotoGP. That's what we've seen with Brad Binder. That's what we've seen with Miguel Oliveira. And... I still can't believe that they were silly enough to let Jorge Martinez skip them to Parmac Ducati for next year because he would have been the next one. The ultimate talent spotter was Molnau with Marc Marquez. He won the Mudder 2 Championship and then went into Mudder GP in 2013 and he blitzed it in no time at all, winning at Cota. So it's the old story. If you're quick, you're quick. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Jazpreet Photography how have Yamaha ended up with such an unreliable bike with all their experience I'll tell you what Simon why don't we bring Neil Spaulding in now to, to catch up with some tech absolutely question from Miami.6 why does Brembo offer so many options eight of them with the brake disc at 340 mil, high and low, high and low mass, 320 brake pads, hard bite, medium bite. Why is there so much, and is it almost too much, Neil? Well, it, this is a game of tailored motorcycles. People go fast because the bike is made precisely for them, for their desires, for their uh, responses, for their the way they like a bike to feel, and all. Brembo are doing is saying here's here's about uh, five different pairs of trousers and five different pairs of jackets 
uh, uh, jackets, which what what do you want? What fits you best? Um, if you're referring to what happened at Austria, then sometimes they say, okay, here's here's the uh, five different pairs of trousers and the five different jackets. However, you will notice really really hot outside, and we do recommend this very particular loose fitting jacket because it will give you the best possible combination responses. Appreciate you really like the dark blue pinstripe wool one over there but it won't be suitable for the occasion which pretty much summarizes what Maverick Vignales did because he went and chose the pinstripe heavy duty wool version and it funnily enough wasn't suitable for the occasion so it's choices sometimes with a very major technical twist to them the specific ones I'd note are the 320mm and 340mm discs Everybody except Honda needs the 340mm disc. Honda have built a completely different motorcycle uh, because it slides into corners. Maverick, uh, Marquez hits the brakes really hard, pitches it onto its nose, gets the back end down again by dropping his center of gravity, and then hits the rear brake as hard as he can and basically slides it into a corner. No other manufacturer does that or can do that. So Honda's always had an advantage on the brakes, if you can ride the motorcycle like that, and very few people can. Mm, yes, it is. Uh, it is very Mark Marquez, isn't it? Uh, Pietro Lofria. Let's go back a little, if we could, Neil. Let's go back right to the beginning of MotoGP era in two thousand two. Could the Aprilia Cube have been competitive if Jan Viterveen hadn't tried too much? too soon the cube had utilized a cable had it utilized a cable throttle and an alternative firing order for the triple might it have been tamed or was it all down to the chassis i think pietro it was all down to a rather aggressive triple that of course neil had come from cosworth it did i mean let's be quite honest um the triple the cube was a bit of a bodge uh, Aprilia wanted to come to MotoGP. Where do we get a really, really high-spec four-stroke engine? Um, they'd just been dealing with um, Aprilia on V-twins. Sorry, with Cosworth on V-twins. Turned around to Cosworth. Cosworth said, yeah, sure, we can do you three slightly long-stroke cylinders off a Formula 1 engine. I think they put it out once. The rider turned completely white. Um, and they all went back to the drawing board. Then it was a question of calming it down. The problems were that Cosworth didn't really know how to build a motorcycle engine. Um, I believe they had a quick look at the several motorcycles and put a bit of a stab as to where the output shaft should be. Um, and Vitavine wasn't actually involved at that point. Vitavine was staying with the 250s and everything else. Um, a chap called Gigi Dalinia was put in charge. Um, again, sitting there thinking what do we do with all this and another chap was drafted in um one of the at that time junior chassis uh, designers and they put together a motorcycle that would hopefully work but what they actually had was three cylinders um off a formula one car a pre-unit gearbox it wasn't attached to the back of the engine um it had a big plate on top and it had a big plate down the side um, and a contra-rotating crank. I mean, basically, it was a bodge. And what they could, what they finally worked out was they could have the center of gravity in the right place and the output shaft 
and therefore its relationship with the swing arm in the wrong place, or they could have the swing arm and the output shaft in the right place, or they have the center of gravity in the wrong place. Wrong place. And they weren't going to get out of that without redesigning the engine. They did resign the, redesign the engine. They designed the bike. There are pictures in my book. It came out for one test in public at Valencia, funnily enough, the same day that they announced their withdrawal. So I have pictures in my book of the redesigned bike. Um, it had everything in the right place, but at that point they stopped. The only the only part that ever actually raced was the seat unit, because uh, one of the Jap one of the Italian Moto Two manufacturers took a great liking to the design of the seat and put it onto their Moto Two bike. So there you have it. Another question from Pietro Lofria, and I like this one. Disregarding that the current MotoGP rules do not allow anything more than four cylinders. Would the original Honda V5 still be competitive today with the current tyres and the current spec of electronics? Good question. Yes, it would, but you'd have to start again. Because since the V5, we've had the restricted number of engines rules, the fuel consumption rules, and the electronics. The restricted number of engines brought us massive advances in material science and in plating and coating sciences. So the insides of the engines are way more efficient than they were back then. You, nothing says you can't make a V5 using those technologies, though. But you'd end up with shorter stroke, uh, different combustion designs, everything else. Pneumatic valves, pneumatic valve springs have come in since then. So you'd do all that as well. So yes, you could run a V5. Yes, you could use the core of that Honda V5, which was a genius way of having a narrow angle of 75.5 degrees that was self-balancing, no power sapping balance shaft. They managed to do it all in the crank. And that's the real genius of that design. And yes, I do believe it, if you'd spent the money on everything else, that it would be. It is, and it's, well, it was quite something to, to, to see, to be able to commentate on, to listen to, and then to see dominate. And to ride. And to ride. As I'm one of the very few people being very, very lucky to have actually ridden one. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up again. <laughs> uh, what I would say, what I would say, it, it is the most brilliant natural design ever put out in MotoGP. Everything else has an element of the bodge about it to get an effect they want. But all of those, what I call the bodge designs, there's always a price. With this design, there were no prices. In fact, it was the exact opposite. There were benefits. It was superb. Neil Spaulding does have a picture of him riding Nicky Hayden's number 69 Honda V5 on the side of his fridge. Yes, and that's where it's staying. That's actually <laughs> very, very cool, I do have to say, every time I go into the kitchen. Yeah, fair play, fair play. A question from Brandon. Uh, Neil, I have a question for you about your third edition MotoGP technology book, because on page 59, you mentioned that Valentino Rossi did not carry the doctor stickers on his bike for a few races in early 2006. Do you know why that was? Thank you in advance. <laughs> That's the trick question for you, Neil. There you go. Um, basically, they thought they'd fixed the bike. They thought they'd fixed the bike. This is the start of 2006. This is before the chatter problems reared their ugly head. And he turned up and he ran a few races, no stickers. Uh, the pictures are in the book. Um, and as soon as they knew they had the chatter problems, the doctor stickers went back on because he was going to fix that motorcycle. He was back in surgery. So post post, post test. So it's like three races they weren't there. <laughs> 
Quite something. He Neil even knows about stickers. Never mind titanium and carbon fibre and gearboxes. Dave Moore, KTM, seemed to have fitted the final piece of the jigsaw. Is there any standout technology that they've implemented that the other factories need to now develop, or is it just an all-round but well-tuned package in 2020? Uh, two things have occurred. One is they've really got this steel chassis to work. And it is possible, it is just possible that that is actually better than the aluminium, purely because you can make, this is the difficult bit, a steel chassis or any chassis has to be stiff under braking, resist twist when 270 to 300 horsepower is put through the chain on one side at the back of the motorcycle, the, the chain drive but be very flexible when it's leaned right over. And the more we lean over, the more we need it to bend a little bit to give the tire some suspension because the springs don't work um, as suspension when you're leaned over it getting on for now 65 to 67 degrees of lean. When we started MotoGP, bikes weren't going over 58, so it's been a massive change. It is possible steel is better than that simply because you can get the strength for the braking with a very thin chassis and that allows you to build in the twist when it's leaned over and it's getting that one piece of technology to do all three things um, with the least number of bodges that makes a big difference the other thing that's working in their favor now is that fantastic piece of technology called the rule book they have got this thing together and they've made it work in a year where they have lost their concessions but the concessions they lose do not include the number of engines. So you're talking about a KTM factory that's now spent three or four years trying to get its technology right, but it has two more engines than all the other factories. At this point, you could argue it's got five more engines than the Yamahas. So they can rev it more, they can make more power, they can make mistakes and get away with it. And that will be in place until the end of this year. This is the perfect year for KTM to deliver. And if Paul didn't keep falling off, they probably would be. But they've had two victories out of five already, so things are going well. Yeah, the stars are certainly aligning. Uh, 46 says, how come riders don't do burnouts anymore after they win the races? Are Michelin very strict about that, Neil? Bring it home as it finished the race? No, the man who makes the engine is. Um, burnouts are not good for motors. Um, yes, it destroys the tyre, but pinning it and having the thing wailing up near the red line just for show, you've basically got five engines this year for 15 races. You can do a burnout if you like, but now it might not finish one of them where it would have done before. Why on earth would you do anything you don't have to do with that engine? Here, 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 here. Lammy. Good question, this. Four-stroke and normally aspirated 1,000cc will not be relevant forever. Whilst it's easy to assume batteries and electric will be next, are manufacturers here now making noise about what they would like as a rule update with tech? For example, hybrid, turbos, synthetic fuel. Where do you think MotoGP technology with, with the engine or horrible word, the power unit, might go in the next decade? Short term cost matters more than anything else. Just they've got to murder the cost. And 
yes, you've got some development going into engines, but it's it's not a ton. You know, we, we've got a fairly stable series of power outputs. The only one that's got problems is Yamaha. I personally think supercharged smaller engines would make a lot of difference. That gets them through emissions and everything else for the next few decades. Long term, I don't think big batteries are the answer. Um, you know, 300 kilo motorcycles simply don't make sense uh, in a sporting or normal use basis. If you want to go and tour the US, fine, go get a Goldwing, but that's where they're, that's the only place they're good for as far as I'm concerned. Um, I do think hydrogen will come in um, and I think that technology has got a way to go. But I think actually that's the, the the next thing. But apart from that, I do actually think small. Uh, how can I put it? For the road, small four-stroke singles will be very or twins are uh, the medium-term future, and long-term switching that over to hydrogen is the most likely thing for me. Um, and their racing will go the same way if there is still racing. I think there will still be racing. It's just how they do it. Um, I agree with you. Batteries is not the long-term future for for mobility four or two wheel it's it's a hybrid kind of hydrogen mix but here and now in 2020 who knows what's going to happen in in 2030 so so let's leave that there well done thank you also to carlos why doesn't the yamaha have or need a rear tire cooling fin hashtag uh, downforce well what the fin does is convert excess engine power to grip. And that's fine if you have excess engine power. Yamaha noticeably don't have excess engine power, so they'd rather not have the drag. And they seem to be able to generate mechanical grip without needing the wing. Um, the, the, air, the, the more wings you've got hanging off your motorcycle is pretty much an advert for we've got all this extra power and we're trying to make it trying to use it doing these some other some other tricks so the ducati has way too much power lots of wings the honda has a little bit too much power some wings um the ktm has the same as the honda but yamaha hasn't got enough power so let's just have something at the front to keep the front down and leave it at that thanks neil a uh, question here from ronnie prasad why hasn't motor gp run different layouts on the same track this season bearing in mind that we went to Hareth and had two grand prix we've been to austria and had two grand prix not really an option to run different layouts at those two circuits it's the old story a circuit is homologated in one particular layout for grand prix motorcycle racing and it's usually not usually, it is one homologation for that one layout at that one circuit. There is an option to cut the corner off at uh, Silverstone. If we were going there, there's an option to cut the corner off at Red Bull Ring, but it would make the circuit shorter than the two-and-a-half-mile mandatory suggested FIM shortest length for a circuit. Uh, running them backwards, that's a complete no-go. Overlap of barriers is the first thing. Only once have I seen a circuit run the wrong way round, as it were, the other way round, which was a British touring car race at Donington ages ago, decades ago. Um, don't think I've even never seen any footage of it, but they ran it the other way round, but it's, 
in this day and age with with the, with the tech involved and the science involved with safety with overlap of barriers and curbs of course that are serrated at one way not not both ways it's uh, it's a difficult one um yeah i've always i've always said it wouldn't it be great to see spa <laughs> run the other way around going down oh rouge I, I don't know if that's the word i'd use <laughs> terrifying maybe <laughs> Be like Craner on speed, wouldn't exactly. it? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Yes, it would be uh, something else. The the other thing, just to worth note to that, is that obviously Formula One have done that in a few places this year or are going to, but it's also a lot easier to homologate a circuit for car racing generally because you can have closer walls, closer barriers, closer fences than you can with motorbikes. You need runoff, and a lot of multiple layout circuits have one like you say, one homologation for bikes and then multiple options that are designed primarily for car racing. So it's easier to do for four wheels. Forgive me, Dushan. I hope that I get your surname right. Amarashiki. 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 I hope I've got that right, Dushan. Could Andrea De Vizioso be a Honda test rider next year? Good one. Oh, that's you've thrown me a left field question there. <laughs> if he's not racing, you have to think that manufacturers who are not Ducati would be very interested in getting his uh, his name on a piece of paper. Yeah, uh, Honda is a somewhat natural fit given he's been there before. He's been a factory rider, and he has a little bit of familiarity with at least the structure, if not the the bike, because obviously we've switched to made hundreds to thousands since then. Uh, Yamaha have a test rider, and Jorge Lorenzo don't need one. Ducati, I don't think either party would take them. Uh, Suzuki are very happy with Sylvain Cantoli. Yeah, there is definitely a Honda option. There's also maybe an Aprilia option because it would be a good PR story and it would involve very, not very little work for Dovi, but, you know, certainly a lot less than he's needed to do now. I can see him slotting into Aprilia as a sort of a Casey Stoner Ducati test rider where they, they still keep the one that they have. They still keep Bradley Smith and he rocks up for a few VIP attendances and shows what the bike can do. Brandon, forgive me, I haven't got your second name. Uh, in your opinion, what are the most beautiful bikes of the modern era? You first. <laughs> there is no such thing anymore, I think, as a beautiful Grand Prix motorbike. They are incredibly functional things. The wings, the aerodynamics, the weird ships, the weird seat units, etc., etc., etc. None of them are designed to be pretty. Um, which don't get me wrong, that's not a criticism. I love it. I love the fact that they look alien, out of this world, spaceships designed to do two hundred and fifty miles an hour. But I wouldn't call any of them pretty. Uh, the closest thing to a pretty MotoGP bike at the minute, personally, is the Ducati V4R road bike, which obviously pretty much has the Desmo Sedici's engine in it and is a proper Italian work of art. Yeah, right. But is it pretty because it's not cluttered with stickers? Because I'm, I like clean, stickerless racing machines because you can see their lines. Yes, uh, good point. Wouldn't it be wonderful for somebody, hello, is somebody out there, to <laughs> mac up all of the grid but without any stickers on? Ooh. Maybe just a red, a red Ducati, an orange KTM, 
a blue Yamaha, a black Aprilia, etc. Blue Suzuki. No, there's a challenge. Somebody could do it. Somebody could yes. do it. I think that 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 tail section of the Ducati looks wonderful just brilliant <laughs> fantastic i love everything about it i love the slash exhausts i love the close-up view that you get with the carbon fiber weave naked carbon fiber always if it's laid up well with pre-preg you can't go wrong you the the engineering of the foot pegs the way that they've been machined again stunning I think that the Patronus could look a bit better with the colour scheme, not the not the not the physical bike, but the yeah, colour scheme. Agreed. I'm surprised that they haven't put more turquoise into it, silver turquoise kind of thing. I I don't like black bikes. I personally I don't think they work. And likewise, too much white sometimes doesn't work unless it's really mm -hmm. clean, like a Pepsi Suzuki or something. Uh, I'm unfortunately a little bit biased. Let's put my cards <laughs> on the table. I think that Red Bull KTM just looks the business. When it was unveiled, I went, that is just the fantastic. You know, it was one of the first ones to bring a matte color scheme into, yes. into MotoGP. And the, uh, the, the red color of the Red Bull is actually quite an orange because then it trans as red on your television screens yeah uh, like the marble mclaren used to be kind of a day of glow orange kind of thing so yeah uh but the ducati you know that picture of petrucci coming down the side of the hill from gareth harford the other day it just looks fantastic <laughs> I, I, I really do like it really does does look good it's it's funny what you say about no stickers because the most beautiful racing bike that i've ever photographed was uh 2010 whenever they made the tt 3d closer to the edge movie uh they followed guy martin for the season and they sponsored guy's team for the year so that they could have a bike with no sponsors for commercial reasons and they ran uh wilson craig racing ran a fireblade and a cbr 600 in the mike hillwood era silver with the the yellow and red pinstripes and it just looked incredible like you say, no different from any other Fireblade in the grid that year, but no stickers, and it just worked. Always does work well, and some subtle little stickers maybe right on the bottom of the belly pan would yeah. always just satisfy a few people, but the cleanliness of it would last forever. A bit like a, uh, like a Kajiva. The Indeed. cleanliness of the red would always yes. stand out. Always stand out. Uh, uh, another question from Brandon: How long do you expect Pooch to remain team boss at HRC? Controversial question, <laughs> Brandon. Um, he is a controversial figure. He uh, he shoots from the hip. He says it how it is in Pooch world. That doesn't necessarily resonate to how the rest of the world may see a certain subject that he's talking about. Um, everybody's had a bit of a nose-to-nose, toe-to-toe with him up and down the pit lane, uh, particularly yeah. upstairs in the press office. There's always been a bit of a yeah. disagreement. Been there, done that. Been there, done that myself. And how long is he going to remain? First of all, we don't know. None of our business. None of us are involved at HRC. Uh, nobody lasts forever. Of no. that, there is no doubt. If they keep winning, then... They're not going to kick him out. I would say that how long he lasts is probably more dependent on Mark Marquez than on anything he does. 
quite. Let's see what form Mark come back, comes back with. And finally, another question from Brandon. Is the step forward that KTM have made between 19 and 20 the biggest step you have ever seen a team make in the span of one year? <laughs> it is a difficult... No, it's not a difficult... It's a different year in 2020 because <laughs> we're missing the king, aren't we? We're missing our reigning world champion in the shape of Mark Marquez. We're missing the man who would dominate and regularly, usually win the race. What's, what are his stats? He's won it, you know, more than 50% of all MotoGP races he's ever entered. So would it be that Mark Marquez would have won three out of the five Grand Prix so far this year? And therefore, we'd be talking a bit more, oh, well, it's just another year and a couple of people have put their nose forward. Maybe KTM would have been second in those races that they have since won in 2020 rather than win and therefore get the the limelight that they've got. It's a difficult one. It it stars aligning as well, Brandon. Sometimes it just lines up the team, the mechanics, the chief engineer, the psyche, the attitude, the fresh attitude of a, of, of a binder. It sometimes works like that. Other times it's through sheer blood, sweat and tears and bloody hard work and bloody-mindedness that eventually get you there. But usually it 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 is a stars aligning thing. What do you think? I you're completely right. It's it's never the bike making a step forward that changes these things. It's the the entire package making a step forward. And that's what we've seen this year. We've seen the entire package step forward. Um everyone is up their game from the, the guy that's machining parts to the guy that's sitting on the bike. And that's what's brought on such a huge change. Uh, my my immediate gut response to that question would be, no, it's not the biggest step forward we've ever seen a package make in the space of a year, because for me, that will always be 2003 to 2004 Yamaha. Correct. Valentino jumped on it, won the first race in Velcom. Didn't win a race the year before with Yamaha. Yeah. Or even... Am I right? Didn't even get on a podium that year, the year before. Unbelievable stat. Yes. I doubt myself in saying it because I still can't believe it 17 (laughs) years later. And obviously, he was dominant on the Honda for the two years previous, but that's what I mean about it's never just one thing, it's the package. It takes every part to be aligned, and that's what happened that year. And it's what's happening this year at KTM too, but not to the extent of that incredible first win and welcome. Question from DJG66. How happy do you think that Danilo Petrucci is right now watching the KTMs because... He's going to be riding one with Tech 3 in 2021. He must be disappointed to leave Ducati. He is an Italian through and through. It is the Italian motorcycle team full stop. He's going somewhere else. He must be pretty happy. Um, I hope he's done a good deal. I'm sure that his manager has. Uh, again, spoke to Hervé Poncheral about this the other day, and obviously he's going to ride for him next year. Uh, Hervey says the reason that KTM decided to go with Danilo because he's the factory's choice, not necessarily Hervey's, is because he turned up in Madikhofen and said, look, I'm a huge fan of KTM. I'm a huge fan of your mentality. I've had KTM off-road bikes my entire life. I love what you guys are doing. I love the feel of the project. I want to be a part of it. So to be bringing in a rider who's that passionate about it and to be looking at the results he's having right now in the Ducati, 
plus the results that KTM are having elsewhere, I would imagine he's just about the happiest man in Italy. Mm, mm, very much so, very much so. I'm a big believer in people just writing to somebody that they want to work for. I want to work for you because I'm committed. People did it in, in Formula One. I don't know, they, they wrote to... There's a friend of mine, he, he wrote to Colin Chapman, who ran Lotus, and he said, I just want to work for you. And that's that. Uh, I also <laughs> know that Kiwi Brendan Hartley... He wrote to Porsche, the Le Mans project, and said, I want to drive for you. Alex Wurtz, that's another one. He saw a Le Mans car yep. testing at Spa-Francorchamps. He said, I rang my manager and said, get me in that car. He won Le Mans in it. Brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, good, uh, Petrucci. He must be uh, sitting pretty by the time uh, we get to the beginning of 2021. Kurt Batens. I fail to understand why the bikes are allowed to be refueled and tyres to be changed in a red flag scenario. Should it be possible to put the bikes in a park firme with some tyre warmers on and then start the second race with that technical configuration? Interesting. A couple of people have brought this up. Uh, so has Samuel Gomes. He said the same kind of thing. It's an interesting scenario. Does it change things? Does it not? Are we might it be overthinking things if 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 bikes are in a park firme scenario? Difficult one. Yeah, um, I think it 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 would change things. Um... It would not necessarily give, you know, I think people are asking this question based obviously on what one mayor did and then didn't do before and after the red flag last week in Austria. And I think it would still change things, but maybe not change them the way that they were changed, if that makes sense. I don't think that people would restart the race and just go back to their positions beforehand because some people are better at getting temperature into tires. Some people are better at managing tires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I... I don't think it would have the uh, the great equalizing factor that everyone thinks it would have. Um, I also did a little bit of asking around on this um, after the race because a few people had floated the idea. And there is also an issue with there being a maximum amount of laps that are allowed to be done on a tire. Because some people already run that quite close to the limit by the time they've done an out lap and an in lap, uh, a sighting lap and then a restart and all that over again. Plus maybe they've scrubbed the tire in for two or three laps and warm up. So you could potentially get in a situation where for safety grounds, you'd have to allow people to change tires anyway. And then there's no point in having the rule anyway. My take on it is if everybody goes back to the pits and they can make any changes they like, as long as it's the same for everybody, it's the same for everybody. That's it. That's it. There's also, you know, the, the, the complication of, what if you have a crash and you have to restart in your second bike? Is that fair? Do you have to take the... If you cause the crash that causes the red flag, then you're not allowed to restart. Yes, but if you're... Only bikes are allowed to restart that return to pit yes, lane. Yes, but say say there's a huge pileup and you clip a bike and fall off at 20 miles an hour and scrape the foot pegs off. Yes. You didn't cause the red flag, but your bike's damaged. You've got an argument that your bike has been crashed, so you should be allowed to start in your second bike. I, I think what we've got now is the easiest system. Exactly, exactly. And it's very rare that we have had two stopped MotoGP races back-to-back, -back, as you said, since when? 1997 was the last time that 96. happened. 96. 96, sorry. Yeah. So it's yeah. a bit of a once-in-a-blue moon. Uh, it is. So that that's uh, another question going on from Samuel Gomes. When 
they restart, should they place riders on the new starting grid separated by their according time they had from each other when the race was stopped? Well, Samuel, that's nigh on impossible because how do you transfer the time to space on the grid. I know what you're saying, and you're touching onto an aggregate race scenario, which is not a favourite of anybody anymore. I think nope. you just line them up where they were in position, a metre apart, because that's a safety issue as well, a metre apart, yeah. and they get the green light and they go. It works. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's also circuits we go to where it's physically not possible because the grid isn't big enough like uh Assen. you'd have bikes around the the corner at Gertima. yeah and saxon ring that'd be around the final yeah. corner so it, yes it wouldn't work yeah. it wouldn't work uh, jack bat jack batkin how do you think paul espargaro will go on the honda next year and who in the smaller classes do you see as potential future MotoGP contenders? well up and coming riders we've touched on it a moment ago with people coming through from Moto two and does it work? Does it not? Well, it worked with Marquez. It's working at the moment with Brad Binder. It hasn't worked for some other people. So that's sort of covered that off. How do you think Paul Espargaro will go on the Honda next year? Uh, <laughs> where, do we, where do we start with Honda? Let, let's, where do we start with let, Let's worry about that. Question, let's it? worry about them for this year hmm. before we get to next year. Yeah. My, my gut feeling is that Paul will, he'll have a lot of front row starts because he's very good at as as Pitt Byer recently described it, closing his eyes and going very fast. Um, so he'll have he'll have plenty of front row starts, a couple of pole positions. He'll be really, really quick in qualifying. I think he will quickly discover that the only way to go fast on a Honda without Mark Marquez levels of talent is to crash a lot, like we see with Cal Crutchlow. I think we'll see similar results to Cal. He'll be semi-regular podium finisher and a very consistent crasher let's see how that one all pans out those are my questions i think i've we've covered off everything simon i think we've covered lots <laughs> i think we've covered lots um i won't ask you who's going to win this year's world championship because none of us nope. know nobody knows and that's going to make the crescendo to this 2020 season even more <laughs> well just lush to, to look forward uh, to like and subscribe wherever you get this podcast from click those buttons for the race also keep in touch with us through our twitter accounts at we are the race at toby moody at denkmit and at spalders thank you so much for joining us we'll be back soon with more MotoGP gp chat <laughs> <laughs>